Welcome to the New Books Network. The world's wealthier countries have in recent years faced challenges from right-wing populist parties and movements that may rejuvenate origins from relatively far in the past, such as in the case of Italy, or they may constitute new formations disturbingly reminiscent of earlier movements of their kinds. So, for example, the alternative for Germany in Germany. So where does populism go from here? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Umut Korkut, a professor of international politics at Glasgow Caledonian University. Professor Korkut is an expert in Turkish and Hungarian politics and has recently published an edited volume called The End of Cosmopolitan Europe, that's with a question mark, Euroscepticism, Crisis, and Borders. He currently leads the EC European Research Council Horizon 2020 funded research projects DRAD, Deradicalization in Europe and Beyond, uh, and DEMOS, democratic efficacy and varieties of populism in Europe, which will come to an end, I guess, this year. Uh, He also currently serves as vice president of the International Political Science Association. He's a graduate of Boazici University in Turkey. Thanks for joining us today, Umut Korkut. Thank you. Good morning, John. Great to have you with us. So your, your current work is very interesting and revolves around populism and the de-radicalization of far-right groups in contemporary Europe. So perhaps you could start by telling us about those projects and how your understanding of populism affects your approach to de-radicalization. Yeah, thanks, John. So as you mentioned at the moment, I'm leading a European Commission-funded project on de-radicalization. It's called DRAD. So this is a project that's delivered across 15 states, uh, all the way from Jordan to UK, from Finland to, to Israel, recovering a huge big uh, geography for that. Um, in, this, in these countries, we are leading this project for the next three years. Um, uh, and now we're looking into various forms of radicalization. The, our starting point uh, is uh, something what we call IGAP spectrum, which is we, we, we perceive, we conceive that people, they travel from a non-radicalized to a radicalized position based on their feelings of how unjustly they were treated. So that's injustice, which is leading to grievance. That's the G in our I gap, which is leading then to alienation and then finally polarization. So in this case, I have to say that DRAD is not a terror or, or a security kind of a project. It is more interested in understanding why people feel themselves unjustly treated. Um, as you said, I moved to this project from a populism project, and in this populism, in this populism project, we were also quite interested in uh, when the relationship between the elite and an individual would break, would break up, when an individual would feel themselves alienated from the rest of the society, and what's the importance of justice 
and your feeling of unjustly treated to that extent. So when it comes to moving from populism to radicalization, actually I just finished a paper with my graduate student, which is under review now. Um, we were looking into the, how come uh, corruption and these feelings of injustice across um, a huge set of population can lead to the people having disbelief of disenfranchisement and then the elite uh, doing things on their behalf. And at, that, at what stage that starts to transform into extremist views. We believe that justice and um, your feeling of unjust and treated once again plays a huge big role. So that will be the starting point in terms of how I approach populism and radicalization research. Right. Interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the literature on populism and on, you know, in the United States on Donald Trump uh, is that it's focused a lot on the divide in educational terms between the better educated and the less educated. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate now about meritocracy in the United States and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing and who benefits from it and who doesn't benefit from it. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the place of education and educational divides in populist, you know, radicalization in Europe? Yeah, thanks for the question, John. Um, I believe along with education, actually, you also need to question quality of education. Um, we as university professors, I think every year we, we, we talk about this thing with our various colleagues that um, while we're educating people, the level of education seems to be you know, decreasing, unfortunately. The other thing uh, when it comes to education is that people, they are more and more losing their horizons. I mean, I'm just comparing uh, you know, my background. I was born in Turkey in, 19, uh, well, in 1970s, and then I was a student at Boston University, as you said, uh, in 1990s. And then as a student, uh, someone studying political science, my horizons were much wider. I was interested in the world. I, wa I, was, I, I wanted to know what was going on uh, around the place. So uh, this, 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 is, this is the problem to my mind because um, not only that people are not being educated, but also those who are educated are having really small lives at the moment. So along with this education gap and this significant gap, let's say, between those with technical skills, with language skills um, in Europe, at least, with an interest in the world, there are a huge bunch of people who are, you know, who have good intentions, but either they don't have an access to, to proper education or else when they go to various colleges, they don't really get this kind of an education that would broaden their horizons. So for me, that, that really becomes, you know, the discrepancy between those who are educated and then those who don't really have a possibility for education. And then you can take people, obviously, right? Um, if they're not really educated, so they would be more prone to manipulation. So you said something about uh, people not having access to education. Could you talk about why that's the case? I mean, as you may know, there's you know a huge discussion about the unaffordability of higher education in the United States. But that tends not really to be the barrier, I think, in Europe, certainly in a place like Germany. So what, what creates the inaccessibility of higher education? I mean, you see, I think when, when it comes to inaccessibility, in Europe, in, in, in the US as well, we're not only talking about nationals any longer, right? Because these are the countries where you have a quite a significant number of people who are uh, non-native, who were not really born there, who don't really have the, the language skills, etc. So this accessibility of education is, I think it's, it's, it's quite a complicated story and it, it goes well beyond 
um, having uh, having enough resources to pay for tuition because you need to have the linguistic skills and it could be the case in Germany, I have to say, I don't know too much about accessibility issues in Germany, but nonetheless, I, I would imagine that the language could, could, could act as a barrier in terms of getting into the German higher education system. The other thing is actually, you may have all the good systems, but people may not really have the aspiration or the interest and you just cannot do anything about it at that stage. You, know, you can you can induce people you know, to, to study, but you can't really force them to study. So for me, you know, this, this disparity issue is, is really complicated and it goes well beyond uh, having the means, uh, as you also said. And it is, it is a social issue in terms of how can you really integrate people into an education system. The other thing is that I don't know whether we can take education uh, as something beneficial at the face value. I mean, it also depends on what we teach these people, right? Um, if these students are taught, you know, things that are really parochial, um, that does not really make them go too too much beyond what they're used to, or else perhaps that does not really make them question or doubt things that they they took for granted. And I believe, you know, issues to do with nation uh, nationalism is is that they are the things that are taken for granted. Then I don't. Then you can question the value of education in terms of breaking this elite mass kind of dichotomy. Right. I mean, you know, the, the question of whether people, you know, want to go to higher education is an interesting one in the sense that, again, here in the United States, there's this, um, you know, I would say push to some extent, or at least a discussion about the idea that people, you know, not everybody has to go to university and that many people would have perfectly nice and productive lives, you know, if they got uh, skills like being a plumber or or, you know, handiwork kinds of things that, you know, that they enjoy and that are rewarding for them and that don't pay that badly. Uh, but that there's come to be this, you know, obsessive emphasis on the importance of a university credential and indeed more specifically of a, an elite university credential. Uh, and, you know, again, back to the sort of political ramifications of this, I think there's been a lot of you know, discussion again in the United States about the extent to which the uh, elitization, if you like, of higher education, the sort of uh, obsession with elite credentials has led to a situation in which, you know, working class people are kind of drifting out of the Democratic Party, which they see increasingly as dominated by, you know, people with elite educational backgrounds, uh, and as therefore sort of out of touch with the, you know, or, or concerns and, and uh, needs of sort of ordinary, you know, less educated people who are, you know, by far the majority in the United States, the uh, proportion in the United States of people with uh, university degrees is something like 36%. Uh, so that leaves two thirds almost of the population without a higher educa education degree. So how would you say that is, I mean, part of the, you know, what's interesting about this is that, again, you know, we're sort of arguing that we should follow the German model of apprenticeship training and, you know, really ramp that up and I guess, you know, persuade people that that's a, a worthy kind of uh, path to follow. Um, but, you know, that already exists in Germany and, you know, I suppose to some degree elsewhere, but um, it's not clear that, you know, <laughs> Getting a university degree in the United States also is a you know pretty strong insurance against getting uh, against being unemployed. The unemployment rate among people with university degrees is very low. So, 
So on the one hand, you know, there are a lot of benefits, I would say, to having university education, uh, and some of them, you know, non-material and non-economic, so to speak. But, um, you know, there is this kind of effort to get people into other kinds of degrees or other kinds of paths and also to, um, you know, persuade people that that's a worthy kind of thing to do. And, and you know, that people aren't going to look down on them because they became a plumber or something like that. So, again, you know, the basic question has to do with these uh, this educational divide and its consequences for, you know, for politics and for populism. Um, I mean, listen, John, when you look into our industrial revolution in 19th century, right, um, it all originated from this kind of arts and crafts movement. Uh, so that was the case in Britain. I, I, I imagine it, it also had some kind of um, a process uh, in the U.S. as well. So, you know, arts and crafts kind of education laid down our the, the, the first kind of path of our industrial revolution. So I don't necessarily think that there's something to be frowned upon in terms of uh, having uh, those kind of skills um, through a more vocational education, as you're saying, uh, in the case of Germany. But the issue is that if you're going to put your emphasis too badly on uh, the importance of vocational education, then what happens to humanities? Because the most, in most of the countries, humanities, as it is, is not necessarily considered as a part of or as an extension of your uh, vocational education, isn't it? However, if you don't really teach humanities to students, um, students, they, they, they start missing, they start lacking. They're very universal, very wide, uh, kind of expansive horizons because it's only through, you know, humanities degrees, people, they start getting interested in the rest of the world, uh, in various languages, in, in history, in geography, etc. So I have, I have a feeling that, um, in, for example, in, in US, you have this Black Mountain College, right? And Black Mountain College was this extremely uh, interesting uh, art, uh, artistic movement, which brought together both arts and crafts people with various artists and with various poets, with novelists, etc. So those kinds of environments can also operate in a way that in a, in a very informal university, if you will. And uh, that, that should not really demote the importance of having vocational education, but um, that also sh should not necessarily emphasize the fact that everyone needs to go to a university in order to gain you know, certain life skills so that they wouldn't be necessarily lured to you know, irrational ideologies or you know, question various things that uh, we should take for granted in our political systems. So, I mean, I, I mean, you're right. I hear you there. Maybe not. Maybe not. Everyone should be doing uh, this uh, extremely ex uh, expansive university degrees, uh, at least uh, in the U.S. And people should have a chance to do vocational uh, degrees, etc. But that should not really underestimate the importance of humanities uh, and humanities teaching and uh, uh, giving these kids uh, uh, an access to uh, an arts uh, uh, kind of a, a curriculum. So that's what I would say. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that it's important for people to get the kinds of education that you're talking about. And I could hardly argue against it, having you know, gone down the path that I've gone down as a result, really basically learning a foreign language, in this case, German. But uh, in any case, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about um, the consequences, basically, of the Ukraine war for right wing populism 
in Europe. Um, you know, Georgia Maloney in her campaign to become the first uh, female president and first far right president, I guess, from uh, in the post-war period uh, in in Italy. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say prime minister, but um, you know, she was in a milieu that, that tends to be, uh, you know, more sympathetic, has tended to be more sympathetic to Russia. Uh, but she made clear her own kind of support for Ukraine and was kind of outspoken about that. So that's this is obviously a kind of source of contestation and controversy among people, of course, across the political spectrum, but to some degree more specifically in the far right kind of milieu. So how would you say this is, you know, the war is affecting this part of the political spectrum that you've been focusing on? I mean, it's a very good question, John. And um, I think my, my feelings, my reflection on it has also changed over time. Because in the beginning, I thought that this is going to stir uh, white supremacist movements. Um, certain people from uh, e e Europe, at least, they were going to travel to Ukraine to fight on behalf of the Ukrainians. And then at the same time, there were going to be um, people with extremist views who are not in the Russian army, but um, they, they will be recruited from here and there. And it was going to be um, this kind of this fight uh, that that would that would involve various paramilitary groups, etc. And I suppose in the beginning there was a certain tendency whereby um, various extremist groups they 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 started looking at this uh, war in Ukraine. Almost it was the war against uh, the, the the East, um, in which uh, Russians uh, they represented the East. But that this did not really happen. I mean, this was also a problem, uh, or maybe a nice problem with the DRAD project, because uh, for us, you know, this this whole concept of radicalization has been always changing since we started the project, and we thought that this could be this could be what what we should expect. And then it, it evolved into you know Russophobia in the sense that even hearing people speaking Russian uh, started to give you some kind of creeps. In a way that, as if you know, if you if you speak Russian, you know, you would represent uh, uh, Kremlin, etc. So in this case, I'm not really too uh, kind of surprised that uh, Georgia Meloni, after all, uh, is uh, has shifted from a certain position to a more pro-Ukrainian position. But I mean, you may have seen uh, in the news, perhaps it was a few weeks back, um, there was a huge big uh, rally in Italy, which was against against war. So the people who took part in that rally, they would not necessarily probably uh, vote for Georgia Maloney or all the, I don't know, because a huge chunk of the population voted for her after all. But I mean, I think uh, having an anti-war position, I think should not really be conflicted into uh, having a pro-Russian pro or uh, having a more you know, radical uh, political ideology uh, in the beginning. The other thing is that um, the Italian uh, far right uh, show the South extremely resilient in terms of uh, fitting themselves into what is expected of them globally. So if you look into the trajectory of the Cinque Stelle, for example, or um, uh, Salvini's movement and, and all that, you would see that as soon as they came to power, their uh, um, kind of focus on Europe has shifted, their reflexes on international uh, relations have changed. Um, so there's a trajectory here in the sense that um, whoever comes to power in Italy, considering how dependent they are economically on the European Union, 
they immediately see the remit of their uh, uh, political strength and um, they make a decision in terms of uh, having more pragmatic, which you don't, which you don't see in Hungary. You know, that's a country that I know a lot more uh, than, uh, than Italy, for example, whereby politics ha have become way more um, kind of bogged into certain ideologies that where pragmatism died. So I would say that I'm not too surprised with Giorgia Meloni coming, you know, shifting to a certain position after she started uh, her, her tenure as a prime minister there. So, I mean, this raises questions, it seems to me, about the kind of longer or medium, anyway, medium-term future of, of far-right movements in Europe. I mean, you know, uh, in the United States, we've just had these midterm elections, which, you know, many commentators have seen as a case of Republican underperformance, particularly among those who followed Trump and who were supported by or endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, and so there's a kind of sense that things in this area are kind of waning. Uh, but in, 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 in Europe, I mean, the, the traditional working class parties have kind of been completely transformed or have essentially in many ways disappeared, say in France, um, in favor of new kind of movements and parties that are uh, uh, absorbing this kind of working class um, energy and, you know, have come increasingly as Donald Trump's Republicans have in some ways tried to do, have tried to have become a kind of, you know, representative of the working class. And so they seem more institutionally anchored in, in Germany, in France, in Italy, um, in Hungary, of course, as you say, is kind of a, you know, an extreme case of this in a way. Um, so, you know, I guess the question is, uh, you know, do you see any, you know, medium, near to medium term likelihood that all of this is going to sort of become, you know, uh, sort of absorbed into more mainstream energy and these uh, organizations and movements will be sort of uh, marginalized again? Um, it's a very good question again, thank you. Uh, I, I gave a book lounge uh, at the American University in Paris a few weeks back. And uh, my, my, my colleague um, and my dear colleague as well, Steve Sawyer, asked me the same question. He said, well, I mean, come on, you talk about all these far-right moments and what's their impact after all? Um, they, they don't seem to be elected uh, in office, even if they're elected, they don't seem to capture you know, the role of prime minister. In Europe, at least, look at you know, Swedish Democrats. Um, they, they receive a huge chunk of vote, but um, they can't even become the prime minister, etc. And in the case uh, being Lepin, in the case of France as well. But the issue is that, and then we came across that that more uh, a lot uh, in the Demos project, uh, as you kind of mentioned. Um, while populist or far right, and I don't really want to conflate populism into far right. Okay, I mean, the populist movements, they don't necessarily have to be far right. They, they have various uh, gradients of, of being a populist political party. Their ideas and their policies, they, they one way or another get into, uh, get into power. Uh, and that is pretty much the, the centrist party is shif shifting towards the uh, extreme flanks of, um, of politics and then embracing uh, various uh, policies, various political ideologies from the far right movement. For example, for the Demos project, we were um, doing a, a certain task that looked into how the other, um, the other of, of, of the populists, they were negotiating uh, their identity with, with the populist discourse because you know, most of the, the, the populism itself 
uh, has been taken on face value. We look, we look into the discourse and narratives of political leaders from populist parties, but we don't really understand what the other thing, let's say, um, in, in, in the case of uh, Poland, for example, what, what would uh, gender activists or you know, LGBT populations think? How do, how do they feel themselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, the populist narrative? So we did certain um, focus groups there. We asked people a few questions, what, what they thought. And the, the task was delivered in, in Poland, in Hungary, uh, in Turkey, in Greece, and in the UK under my leadership uh, for the Demos project. And then we saw various levels of activism, various levels of um, people turning themselves into more kind of echo chambers um, or uh, being a, a kind of cynical or they want to leave, etc. But when it came to Britain, it was very difficult for us to pinpoint what is a populist party because... You may say that the conservatives have become populist, right? But I mean, the, what made conservatives populist was pretty much the emergence of Brexit Party. Um, so while Brexit Party did not get into power, but thanks to Nigel Farage and his personality and his, his visibility, his eminence, his resonance, whatever you want to say, his ideas were embraced by, uh, by, by the conservatives um, or as at least the conservatives, they were made, made to be scared of what may come if they don't necessarily act uh, on this EU issue. And then you have the result of, um, you have the result of uh, Brexit in the end. And um, or else, you know, in the case of Hungary, for example, if you look into the course that Fidesz has moved from a centre-right party to, to where it is now, uh, you would see that in order to somehow invade and consolidate its power, in the whole right flank of Hungarian politics, Fidesz simply started to absorb all the policy proposals of Jobbik um, and, well, mostly Jobbik and uh, like Magyar Garda and all those kind of things, which made uh, Fidesz and tur which turned Fidesz into an extreme uh, uh, radical uh, right party. The other thing is actually, I mean, so far we only talked about politics as if it is only happening in the national field but more and more in Europe uh, I think there's also a certain cross-fertilization between US uh, and Europe as well politics political parties political leaders their discourse etc they are not necessarily staying within the, the borders of their na uh, nation states any longer and that's what we came across um, for another horizon uh, Europe funded project called Respond multi-level governance of migration in Europe and beyond. I was leading a certain task that looked into conflict and conceptualizations of Europeanization. And then we collected this macro narrative from uh, political leaders in Hungary, in Sweden, in Germany, in Greece and all that. Uh, and then we could see that uh, there, whatever Orban was saying was creating a certain resonance in Italy. Or then, uh, you know, Jimmy Akarsson, the, uh, the head of the Swedish uh, Democrats, before he was uh, uh, elected into power, um, it, this was delivered in 2017, 2018. He was saying that he was going to look for asylum in Hungary because he, he thought that Hungary represented um, what Europe should be. So this brings me back to your question, which is, yes, perhaps far-right parties, they are not necessarily being elected, being voted into power with such no force or strength as we see um, uh, as we see that their discourse would represent or um, the, the activism around these ideas would represent. But nonetheless, these kind of uh, ideas are creating an, an audience 
that is um, finding kind of hospitable grounds in other kind of political parties, and then they embrace these things. I mean, look at the new Swedish government now. They canceled the environmental ministry. Now they don't have a feminist uh, foreign policy any longer. Also, their, their ideas are going beyond the borders of their states. And then since, you know, uh, politics have, have turned into a social media kind of mechanism, and now we can hear what Orban says, uh, or what Bolsonaro says, what Trump says, et cetera, like everywhere. Um, and you don't necessarily need the, the language skills any longer because most of the time, these uh, politicians are very skilled in terms of putting a certain aesthetics to, uh, to what they say, and, and then there's a performative element to how they represent uh, populism. Now, you asked another question, and I think if you like, we can come back to that. And you said, well, the Republicans, they did not necessarily succeed uh, as much as uh, the pundits uh, would have imagined uh, in the US. Uh, did, I, did I understand that correctly? That were you saying that perhaps um, certain extremist ideas are not really as well received as, as the pundits would have imagined? Well, I think the issue is that in the United States, at least, the, you know, the midterm election you know, is widely being interpreted as a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. And, you know, insofar as he's the standard bearer of many, many of these ideas, you know, that those kinds of ideas will be expected to kind of go into abeyance, in part because, you know, the Republicans are going to say to themselves, do we want to go down this path again and follow Trump into defeat once again? Uh, he has yet to win the popular vote in the United States, right? So uh, he, he, the the people who he endorsed did very badly in this in this election. So, I mean, but we don't need to dwell on that necessarily. But the uh, you know the you've raised the example or the case of Britain, and I want to sort of go back to that if we could, and ask you about you know the significance of Britain in the far right imaginary, if you like. I mean. You know, first of all, and many of these things started as anti-Brussels kinds of movements, right? Uh, that's part of the background to some to alternative for Germany originally was basically an anti-Brussels thing. Um, but so uh, Nigel Farage and, and his followers, you know, lead the country out of the European Union. And of course, that was seen at the time as, you know, potentially the first brick in the wall that then starts to fall apart. And you look at Britain now and what's going on there, and maybe not all the inflation problem is the fault of the people at 10 Downing Street, uh, the many people of late at 10 Downing Street. But nonetheless, Britain seems to be facing severe economic uh, difficulties, um, you know, that are making it look like not a particularly great example to follow. Now, you know, England, the, the UK has always been, you know, something separate from the continent and all that. But nonetheless, I mean, the path that they've taken does not seem to have led to the, you know, glorious days that, that Nigel Farage was uh, proposing was going to happen. So I wonder, you know, what you would say about the implications of the British trajectory for the kinds of politics that we're talking about. Thanks very much. This is a very like, difficult question to respond because on the first of all, we cannot really um, take Brexit out of what's going on uh, globally in order to say that it is Brexit 
or it's the failure of Brexit, or it's their failure to deliver Brexit, however that, that, that was going to be, that led to this, this current economic crisis in Britain. I mean, Britain had uh, uh, a decades-long productivity uh, crisis, because if you look into um, British economy, you'd see that since 2008, um, British economy um, did not really have much of a, a real wage growth or else productivity had been a problem in, in certain parts of, of Britain, starting from uh, deindustrialization in the Northeast, uh, in parts of Scotland and, uh, and, the, and the Midlands and, and all that. So you cannot really separate what happened uh, only a few years back from a, a historical trajectory in terms of what happened to, to, the, to the British economy. The other thing is that in order for a certain and, and as radical um, economic uh, changes such as Brexit to take shape and then to, 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 uh, to create its outcomes and its results, I think we need, we, need, we need to be more reflective and we need a few more years to understand whether it was really Brexit or whether it was this, whether it was that, because Brexit came, happened in a, in a situation where the pandemic has happened, the war in Ukraine has happened, etc. So it just becomes a bit difficult. However, considering supply uh, chain issues and then considering how the borders um, have started to operate in the aftermath of Brexit, it was obviously it's a disaster. Um, not for people to travel, perhaps, but for merchandise to come and go. Because ultimately, uh, when the Conservative Party pushed for uh, this referendum, probably they didn't think that they were going to lose. And that's why David Cameron just you know, resigned a few days afterwards, um, which was a very bad idea. He should have delivered whatever he had in mind. And the country did not really prepare itself whatsoever. And the whole thing uh, simply boiled down into how, what to do with, with Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Protocol, etc. But there are issues that are way more critical to how you're going to operate uh, your borders for commodities in the aftermath of putting uh, customs um, between uh, your uh, your biggest uh, trade um, uh, trade partners uh, and yourself. And uh, that, that is a situation whereby you, know, you start to see uh, inflation there. So uh, to my mind, I mean, whether Britain really gave a, a, a wrong uh, uh, like, uh, lesson, uh, whether Britain just shows what happens uh, to you uh, if you leave uh, uh, the EU, uh, et cetera. I, I mean, I, I don't even know. If you, take, if you took this uh, EU thing to a referendum in other countries, people may as well still vote for, for leave. I mean, don't underestimate the fact that um, there is a very deeply embedded Euroscepticism in the Scandinavian countries that comes to effect when it comes to their accession to the Eurozone. Um, they, they seem to be rather uh, more comfortable with using their national currencies and uh, all kinds of referenda thus far to do with uh, a further... Uh, expansion of the European Union in terms of um, in terms of its policies uh, or or much deeper integration, it seems to have bogged into some kind of uh, discomfort with the electorate in Ireland. Being I worked at UCD uh, a few years back, um, in Ireland, being uh, these referendum having had to be taken until the people they vote yes on these things, etc. So. Um, I mean, I, I don't really know whether you know the, the British situation would have really uh, taught a lesson to the rest of the continent that well, this is what would happen to you if you leave the European Union, because the conditions under which uh, the countries would have left the European Union, although legally uh, there's a clause that says that you can leave, 
But um, the political or the economic conditions or the procedural conditions, if you will, in terms of pushing for a referenda is not all that well set in other countries. Um, and uh, you may still have some countries wanting to leave the European Union despite the British situation, considering the fact that people may not really have the, the same trajectory of um, the productivity problem or education gap, if you want, or deindustrialization uh, as Britain have had even before uh, Britain uh, or the British public started to uh, consider uh, leaving the European Union. Now, um, you do not want me to comment too much about the American midterm elections, but I have something to say on that. And I suppose that can also relate a bit to Britain sure. because I mean, I believe that despite all the Tories they still have a chance to, to win this, the next election. Um, and the reason why I think that is, at the moment, uh, the, the electorate is going through a certain trauma. And this trauma has started with the pandemic, and then uh, it continued, it expanded, let's say, with the war in Ukraine. And it looks very likely that when the electorate uh, is, is traumatized, they're in par paralysis, and they, do not, they cannot think of an alternative. So while um, Trump did not really win as much as uh, he wished, or the Trump-appointed candidates did not really win as much as um, uh, some pundits would have imagined or Trump supporters would have imagined, a certain uh, reason why that may be the case could be, although I, mean, I don't have uh, opinion surveys here, the fact is that people are so traumatized with the cost of living crisis, with, with inflation, with the war, with, with the pandemic, etc., that um, while they may not really be too happy with the Democrats, in this paralysis, they just cannot really move on to another, to another alternative because they do not, if, if you're traumatized, and paralyzed, you don't have the courage to think of an alternative. So um, my dear colleague, uh, Emilia Palona from University of Helsinki, she organizes these populism conferences every year in Helsinki, and uh, she invited me to give a keynote, and I gave this keynote about Hungarian elections and why Hungarian elections did not lead to a change in power, and on top of everything, Orban being elected with two-thirds majority, with the sense that the Hungarian electorate had been traumatized uh, with war, the cost of living crisis, etc., and that, they, that that put them in a paralysis that they could not even dare or had the courage to think about an alternative. So, at the moment, I think the Democrats they seem to have been lucky because while people are paralyzed and while people they cannot really dare. Uh, to imagine an, an alternative that gives some certain space for Democrats in order to perhaps uh, uh, talk better about their uh, policies and reach out to electorates, um, uh, etc. in various parts of the country. And I've been watching uh, TV since I came to America, obviously. It seems like, for example, um, a new um, uh, elect person, Gabe Vasquez uh, in New Mexico, I mean, he made it uh, in a constituency which voted for you know, Republicans thus far, and he was very proud. So uh, I think still the Republican Democrats, they have the benefit of doubt in the sense that you know, they can still reach out to the electorate while the electorate is in, in certain paralysis in the aftermath of all these big crises. And in the next two years, probably the, the electorate gave them the benefit of doubt rather than shifting drastically to the Trump camp. And um, I don't think that this, should, this, this, this will always be the case uh, in the elections to come. So one last question, uh, which has to do with your country of origin. And as I've mentioned previously, I actually had the opportunity to teach there, in fact, at Boazici. 
uh, now almost 25 years ago. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating place uh, that has been, I think, sort of utterly transformed since I was there. I mean, it's a quarter of a century in the meantime, but, uh, and it might be characterized, Mr. Erdogan's politics might be characterized as a kind of Islamic populism, you might say. I mean, a kind of reversal of the Kemalist uh orthodoxy if you like and, and a sort of an attack on it a, a kind of power base that you know was came out of sort of over overruling uh kamalism so i wonder you know elections are coming up in the coming year uh he seems to be facing rather difficult circumstances economically but he's kind of made a place for himself in the you know in supporting negotiations or at least talks uh, between the Russians, the Ukrainians, the United States, et cetera, Europeans uh, in Istanbul. And uh, I mean, how do you see things playing out for Mr. Erdogan and Islamic populism in Turkey in the next little while? Um, it's, it's a good question again. Thank you. Um, so the situation, uh, whenever I talk about Turkish politics, I always reflect on Hungarian politics because that had been my education. Um, the situation is not too different, uh, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, uh, to what uh, Hungarian opposition had gone through because the Hungarian opposition, similar to Turkish opposition right now, they brought together a coalition of uh, various opposition parties. Um, and then they appointed a leader who looked to be a you know, moderate and who looked to be well received, etc. So unfortunately, though, um, they could not really have they could not really consolidate themselves against um, uh, against uh, like years long uh, serving a political uh, leader. In the case of Hungary, it was Orban. In the case of Turkey, it is Erdogan, and they they lost big time. Now, the Turkish uh, six-party uh, kind of opposition coalition is composed of the Republican People's Party, that is, as, as you said, it's the uh, Kemalist Party, the Ethetist Party, that was the founding stone of the Turkish Republic, which is going to celebrate its 100th uh, anniversary next year, and then various other dissenters from, uh, the, or, uh, from the Erdogan Party, as well as a, a big uh, kind of nationalist party. Now, so you practically, and they still couldn't even utter the name of who is going to compete against Erdogan. And I mean, the Turkish elections are going to happen probably next year in June, maybe at the latest next autumn. Um, and then um, still, uh, while th there are some rumors, uh, beliefs that um, the leader of the Republican People's Party could be the next person to, to run against uh, Erdogan, it is still not settled. So, and then beyond, you know, there various discussions on who is going to be the opposition candidate for presidency. We don't know anything about what they're saying on other things. It could be that maybe they're saying, but Turkish uh, media is very much controlled by uh, uh, by the ruling party, and we don't really hear too much about these things. So, but politics has also become kind of a competition of uh, personalities. So, in a way, um, they are signaling us. That um, they're going to have uh, Kusturola, who's going to be the next uh, the, the rival. So Erdogan and Kusturola has been in politics for decades now, and he never really won in any election against Erdogan. When you when you bring this to the electorate, what you have is that um, uh, a behemoth like the AKP, which has been in power for so many decades, and then it has uh, it's all. Uh, 
functionaries of the political party and vis-a-vis -vis a six-party coalition, which always uh, faces issues as, as they did in Hungary as well when it comes to campaigning, because it is very, very difficult to have one single voice if there are six different political parties. You start to confuse uh, the, the electorate. Um, so when you compare uh, the visibility during the campaign period of um, a coalition of six parties vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, the AKP party, which has been in power in Turkey for the last two decades, and then you compare the activity structure that they can they can they can organize in terms of reaching out to the electorate. In in one case, you have six different parties who are trying to give like one one image. Um, and then who are trying to who are trying to consolidate one voice. Uh, on the one hand, you have you know uh, AKP, which has been power, which simply has invaded uh, the, the Turkish state and using um, the all functionaries of the Turkish state and being in power for so many decades. It just becomes extremely difficult to run uh, the campaign in order to win against the political power that has been the political party that has been in power for such a long time. And the other thing, once again, I come back to what I was saying about um, this benefit of doubt, the trauma, the paralysis, etc. When um, people are traumatized, once again, I, I think that um, you also become paralyzed and you just lose um, uh, the possibility to think that things could be any different, things could be things could be better, or you may have a, a different leader, etc. So these are all stumbling blocks in front of uh, the Turkish opposition at the moment. Having said that, Turkish opposition has succeeded in, in capturing um, uh, the mayor, uh, mayor's seat uh, in Istanbul, the mayor's seat in Ankara, I suppose, the victory in Istanbul has been um, like extraordinary, um, that um, the, the opposition had a very charismatic leader, someone um, can talk to all kinds of political factions, all kinds of uh, political uh, beliefs, etc. And uh, Ekrem Imamol uh, won uh, in, the, in the municipal elections in 2009. I mean, Istanbul is a huge city. And uh, as Erdogan has said uh, all throughout these years, whoever wins Istanbul wins Turkey as well. And uh, the, the opposition managed that. So I just, I don't want to, I don't ever want to underestimate the resilience of Turkish democracy because Turkey has been a democracy since the end of the Second World War. Um, despite uh, there is the you know, ruptures, fractions, etc., um, to do with um, the military coup and uh, to do with various political leaders that uh, somehow uh, question the strength of Turkish democracy, Turkish democracy has, has stayed. So there's a certain resilience in terms of uh, how active the voters can become, uh, how democratically guided the, the Turkish electorate uh, is, and then that kind of resilience can bring change. And and you don't really have you didn't have that kind of resilience in Hungary, for example, because in the case of Hungary, although uh, according to Freedom House uh, index. Hungary would have been a more consolidated democracy than Turkey, Hungary is in the European Union, etc. The, the history of democracy in Hungary is much shorter. So I suppose that that, that kind of resilience and the length of um, democracy in Turkey could perhaps create um, the momentum in order to change uh, Tayyip Erdogan and in order to replace them with the opposition candidates. So I don't want to be you know, too pessimistic when I talk about the six-party coalition. 
because I believe in the resilience of the Turkish democracy and the democratic uh, uh, credentials of the Turkish public when it comes to voting. Very interesting. Well, and the uh, Turkish-Hungarian comparison is also, I think, extremely intriguing and worth thinking about. But uh, that's going to have to do it for us today. I want to thank Umut Korkut for sharing uh, his expertise on populism and far-right parties in contemporary Europe. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.